You're tuned to Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. The following program is a rebroadcast of Miracle Hunter with Michael O'Neill. Welcome to the Miracle Hunter, where it doesn't matter if you're a believer or a skeptic, it's always worth the hunt. My name is Michael O'Neill. I am the Miracle Hunter and creator of the website, MiracleHunter.com. I'll be your host for the next hour as we continue our weekly exploration of the world of miracles. Now, today's program is focused on American saints. Who is the next American saint? The saints and miracles are intertwined. For a person to be canonized, there needs to be two accredited miracles. Now, prior to John Paul II, uh, the great saint maker who changed the rules of canonization, uh, he got rid of the devil's advocate, which is the person appointed to argue against the sainthood cause, he also decreased the number of requisite miracles from three to two. Um, did you know that Francis has canonized more saints than John Paul II? When he took over for Benedict, he presided over the canonization of the martyrs of Oronto. There were 813 Italians who were slain in southern Italy in 1480 for defying demands by Turkish invaders to denounce Christianity. So John Paul II, in his over 36 years, uh, pontificate, that was the second longest in the history after St. Peter, he beatified 1,340 people, and he canonized 483 saints, which is actually more than the combined tally of his predecessors during the preceding five centuries. So Francis being the Pope for less than a year is on a torrid saint-making pace. Now, there haven't been many American saints, in fact, other than the eight North American martyrs, which includes the likes of St. Isaac Jogues, uh, there have been only ten who have lived in the United States, and only three of those were born in the United States. Well, 2012 was a big year for American saints, as three were added to the list. St. Kateri Tekakwitha, uh, the Native American saint from New York, and one of the few unmarried laywomen ever canonized, and St. Marianne Cope, a nun who assisted the lepers on Molokai in Hawaii. And the, the remaining uh, quote-unquote American saint was Pedro Collingsgod, who was born in the Philippines and was martyred in what is now the United States Territory of Guam. So sort of a technical American saint. Now, as Catholics, uh, the saints are very important to us. Uh, they're our friends in our times of need. I mean, who hasn't lost something and called on St. Anthony for a little help? I love the lives of the saints. Uh, I can still remember when I was young, when my father would read to me after dinner from this thick orange-covered book with blue letters, uh, The Lives of the Saints. I still think back to the stories of early heroic saints like St. Tarsisus and Sebastian that he taught me about. And one of my favorite saint books as a child was called God's Secret Agent. It was the story of Blessed Miguel Pro. He was an undercover priest caring for the poor and administering the sacraments at one of the most treacherous times in Mexico's history. Now, the saints are our role models, uh, carving out the example in what, what can be a, a difficult road to holiness. Uh, for my wife and I, when we got married, we asked permission of the priest in the parish to modify the litany of the saints at our wedding. My wife is a talented musician, and she modified the score and wove in all our favorite saints, all in the right order, since they have to be ranked a certain way and according to their death date so that we could include the likes of St. Juan Diego and St. Gianna two of our favorite saints. It was one of my favorite moments of the entire wedding day. A few months back, when I was at a social gather gathering, uh, a woman there found out that I was the miracle hunter. As many people like to do, she approached me and shared a miracle story of her own. She says that she brought her little boy to Mass one day, and at the moment of the consecration, he pointed to the sky, saying in a very excited voice, Look, Mom, the saints! I see the saints! The woman was so thrilled that her son was having a mystical experience that when she went home, she called her friends to tell them of the spiritual gifts of her son. The next Mass they went to, her young son excitedly shrieked again, It's the saints, Mom! Look, Mom, the saints! Well, when she looked up, she saw in the ceiling the fleur de lis, which, of course, is the logo of the New Orleans Saints, the professional football team. Apparently, in addition to spending time in prayer, her young mystic was spending some time watching football as well. So if there are any Saints fans listening today, I'm sorry that your team lost this past weekend. 
I know that you were hunting for a miracle of your own in the last minute there, but didn't quite work out. Maybe next year. Now, today I'll be interviewing two people directly involved with the canonization causes of two of my favorite potential future American saints. The first is Father Solanus Casey, who's the renowned miracle-working Franciscan Capuchin priest from Wisconsin. We'll have Brother Richard Merling on the program, who's the co-vice postulator of the cause and director of the Father Solanus Casey Guild. Later, we'll be interviewing Michael McDevitt, who's the custodian for the writings of Cora Evans and the petitioner for the cause of her sainthood. For more information on how the Church evaluates miracles and the heroic virtues of potential saints, please visit MiracleHunter.com and read the article, The Science of Miracles, How the Vatican Decides. That was an interview I did a few months ago with the secular science magazine Live Science, and they asked me how saints are made and how miracles are validated. And of course, in just a bit, we'll be asking you a Catholic trivia question, so get your pens and paper ready. Later in the show, we'll be talking about how Our Lady is honored around the world on today, January 14th, in our segment, 365 Days with Mary. More information on this project can be found at 365dayswithmary.com or on Facebook, 365 Days with Mary. Now, in miracle news this week, there was quite an interesting story. Um, It was reported at several news outlets, and it went something like this. A walled-up ancient icon was found in the church of Lepushna Monastery. It's a Bulgarian monastery of St. John the Baptist. The discovered icon uh, depicted the Virgin Mary and the child Jesus as a silver lining and is more than 320 years old. So this elderly woman phoned into the monastery, talked to the abbot, and told him of a dream that she had that pointed to exactly where the icon of the Virgin Mary and little Jesus was hidden. Priests from the monastery rushed to the exact same place as she described and found in a secret compartment in the wall a well-preserved icon that was probably hidden there in 1688 to keep it safe from invasions. Quite an amazing story. To read more about this story or other miracle stories, visit MiracleHunter.com. And to keep up with the latest miracle news, please visit MiracleHunter.com and sign up for our newsletter. You'll receive a monthly email with the latest Miracle Hunter news, including reports of the latest miracles and news stories, links to past radio episode podcasts, updates on my television series, Miracle Hunter, is now in development, and my book, Hunting for a Miracle, due out in fall 2014, upcoming speaking engagements, and much, much more. So sign up for the newsletter on MiracleHunter.com by clicking the newsletter link at the bottom of the page. We'll be turning to the mailbag, or the email inbox, as it were, for something recently sent to us at questions at MiracleHunter.com. This particular one is a message we received through our Facebook page um, from Antonio in Brazil. He asks, what do you know about the Marian apparition of Our Lady of Grace in Pesqueira, Brazil? So, in August 6, 1936... Two girls were sent out into the field by their family to correct, collect some of the harvest. One, one girl's name was Maria da Luz, and the other was Maria de Con... I'm not great in Portuguese. Concepcio, so Conception in Portuguese. She's, a poor fa- she's from a poor family, with, and she's the 16-year-old daughter of an employee of the father of uh, Maria da Luz. So the girls saw some outlaws in the area who were approaching them in the fields, and the girls were afraid. Uh, they climbed up on the stones, which stood between two coconut trees, and started climbing the trees. They, they were in the trees not knowing what to do, and one said to another, What do we do? Uh, we can't go up any further. Now, uh, the girl's father was away and wasn't going to be passing by, so they were abandoned, and they prayed for help. And, and according to the story, lightning came from the so- sky, and they saw Our Lady. Uh, Maria da Luz exclaimed, Look, there is a lady. <laughs> in fact, there is a lady. Uh, holding baby Jesus in her arms. So the Virgin Mary led them down a path which, according to the account, was impossible to climb. Rocks and tangled branches prevented the, uh, the men from chasing them. And they took a detour, and it ended up right near their home, which allowed them to get home quite easily. Now their mother, who was getting lunch ready for them and calling for them, overheard what they were talking about outside the window. And she said, forget about this. 
silliness and wait till your father comes home. Well, when her father came home, he called the local parish priest who asked about their encounter. Um, and so they reported the, the miracle to him. And one of the most intriguing aspects of the story is that the priest was doubtful that they were telling the truth, even though all their answers matched up and uh, seemed to be in line with this miracle. Uh, but the priest switched his questions from Portuguese to German. Now, neither girl uh, had studied German. They were simple farm girls, but each responded with the correct answer in Portuguese. I think that's fascinating. Um, the apparitions continued on for many days, and they predicted hard times for Brazil, and they encouraged prayer, fasting, and penance for the reparation of sins. This is very common across all apparitions. Uh, the apparitions were later investigated by the local bishop, and the Nihil Abstat was given to the messages of the apparitions by Jose de Lima in 1936, and there was a letter of approval from the bishop, Caratinga, of July 1936. Quite an interesting story, and Maria da Luz uh, later became a nun, taking the name Sister Amalia. Um, so for more information on this incredible story, and many more from Brazil and all over the world, please visit MiracleHunter.com. And uh, thank you very much uh, for that uh, question from Antonio in Brazil. So now it's time for Catholic Pub Trivia. Each week I'll be asking a trivia question and giving out a prize for a caller that gets the right answer. This week we'll be giving away a framed image of a piece of artwork titled The Faces of Mary. It's a photo mosaic of 100 images of Our Lady that forms a beautiful picture of the Madonna and Child. Our trivia questions are generously provided by Catholic Pub Trivia, an organization that partners with Catholic parishes, schools, or religious organizations to host Trivia Night fundraisers at local establishments. For more information on Catholic Pub Trivia or to organize an event in your area, please visit CatholicPubTrivia.com. Now, we always try to keep with the questions related to the theme of today's program. Today we'll be discussing American Saints. So the question is, who was the first native-born citizen of the United States to be canonized? Again, that question is, who was the first native-born citizen of the United States to be canonized? And we will reveal the winner later in the show. For more information on Catholic Pub Trivia or to organize an event in your area, please visit CatholicPubTrivia.com. For those of you just joining the program, this is Michael O'Neill, and you are listening to the Miracle Hunter Radio Show. And for more information on the program or my research on miracles, please visit MiracleHunter.com. Now, each week we're going to be doing a segment entitled 365 Days with Mary, and for each and every day of the year, somewhere in the world there's a Marian title, feast, or commemoration of an apparition or a miraculous event being celebrated. It never ceases to amaze me how much the Mother of God honors her unceasingly throughout the year. Now, all the dates with their feasts are collected into one resource, 365 Days with Mary. Each entry features a description of the history of the feast, along with information on the shrine and prayers and other information. The project's available in print form, in the form of a daily engagement calendar, as well as at 365dayswithmary.com. We're also on Facebook and Twitter, so sign up to receive messages each day to get to know the Mother of God, and increase your devotion to Our Lady. Now, we have a caller uh, with the answer to the question. The question, again, was, who was the native-born citizen of the United States first to be canonized? Uh, Meryl, are you on the line? Yes. Is it St. Elizabeth Seton? You are correct. Uh, Meryl, where are you calling from? Lafayette, Louisiana. Wonderful. Thanks so much for calling in today. Uh, it's great to have you part of the program. And you're exactly right. Elizabeth Ann Seton, she was, uh, she was canonized in 1975. She died in 1821. So 18, or 1975, was, it took that long for her to have an American saint. And she is, of course, known for establishing the first, ca first Catholic school in the nation in Maryland, and where she founded the first American congregation of religious sisters, the Sisters of Charity. So, Meryl, thanks so much for calling in, and we'll be mailing you out a framed image of the faces of Mary. Thanks so much. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. Well, we got another uh, caller uh, on our Catholic Club trivia, so that was wonderful. We are able to give that away. 
And swinging back to 365 Days with Mary, um, yesterday's commemoration for January 13th remembers one of the least known of the fully approved Marian apparitions, that's of Our Lady Help of Christians, at Philipsdorf, Germany, in 1866. So be sure to go to 365dayswithmary.com to learn more about yesterday's devotion. But for today, January 14th, the feast day is that of La Divina Pastora, which is the Holy Shepherdess, and Santa Rosa in Venezuela. The story goes that around the year 1736, the pastor of Santa Rosa, the church there, with the town of the same name in Venezuela, ordered a statue of the Immaculate Conception, but instead got a Holy Shepherdess statue ordered by the priest of a nearby town. So he immediately tried to send the statue to its rightful destination, but it suddenly became so heavy that no one could move it. And so Santa Rosa decided to keep the Divina Pastora, and now she is the patron saint of the state of Lara. Um, In 1855, on January 14th, the statue was carried in procession, somehow they figured out how to carry it then, during a cholera epidemic, which ended that same day. Since then, uh, every January 14th, a team of men carry the statue of the Holy Shepherdess, a statue of the child Jesus, and statues of sheep in a large procession procession, um, to the Basilica in Santa Rosa uh, and to the Cathedral. It's accompanied by millions and millions of pilgrims, some of which are barefoot. And that was today's feast, uh, that of the Divina Pastora, uh, the divine, the Holy Shepherdess. So be sure to visit the project 365 Days with Mary on Facebook and online at 365dayswithmary.com to find out more about this devotion and any of the hundreds of other Marian devotions celebrated around the world. This is Michael O'Neill, and you are listening to the Miracle Hunter Radio Show. And for more information on the program or my research on miracles, please visit miraclehunter.com. Now next, we'll be talking about a man who I believe may very well be the next American saint. I've heard so many stories of miracles and people claiming the intercession of Father Solanus Casey, the renowned miracle-working Franciscan Capuchin priest from Wisconsin. Uh, In fact, I have a friend who just told me that Father Solanus was a friend of his mother's family, and they have old family pictures with him. Uh, they attribute the miraculous cure of one of his uncles to Father Solanus. And my friend actually takes his middle, middle name, I didn't even know this, in honor of this holy priest. What a small Catholic world. So on today's program, I'd like to welcome the co-vice postulator of the cause of Solanus Casey and the director of the Father Solanus Casey Guild, Brother Richard Merling. Welcome, Brother. Thank you, Michael. I'm glad to be here with you. Thank you. And now many Catholics I know from the Midwest are familiar with Father Solanus Casey, but around the country uh, they may not be so familiar. So can you give us a little background today uh, and tell us a little bit about Father Solanus? Well, uh, Father Solanus, as you mentioned, was um, actually he was born over in Wisconsin, and he lived there till he was around uh, 22, 22 years of age. And then he came to Detroit... <coughs> to join the uh, Capuchins here, and um, most of his ministry then was spent out in New York and the Detroit area and down in Huntington, Indiana. And um, he never actually went back to live in uh, Wisconsin again uh, once he was ordained. But, uh, of course, he would make visits over there to the family and vice versa. They would come over here. And uh, Father Solanus, of course... uh, came here, it happened to be on Christmas Eve of 1896, and uh, he traveled from Wisconsin to Detroit by train, and it took three days. It was approximately a 1,000 miles of uh, travel on a train, and um, he came here, and uh, once he got to the door of the monastery, he kind of said, you know, is this what I really want to do? And he was almost ready to go back, but... um, he came in and was greeted by the friars, and uh, they asked him to attend um, midnight mass and so forth. And once he had attended uh, the midnight mass, he uh, really felt a very strong feeling in his heart that this was exactly where he was to be. And uh, so he then spends the next eight years in uh, formation and so forth, 
and uh, to become a Capuchin, and uh, was very docile to the uh, request of the superiors to move out to New York and spent his uh, priestly ministry there for about 21, 22 years, and then was transferred back here to Detroit, where he had first joined the Capuchins. And um, it was here where they really became, he really became well-known and that the superiors really uh, recognized the fact that there was something special about this man. Uh, he was ending up to be the porter uh, the one that would greet people, the receptionist at the desk. Yeah. And um, it was kind of interesting because the house chronicler writes in his book uh, here at St. Bonaventure's, he writes, um, it's been three weeks now since Father Solanus has been here at the office. Up until this time, we have had anywhere from 12 to maybe 15 visitors a day. We can now count well over 200 people a day three weeks later that were coming here to the monastery door. So they wow. got to know of the holiness of this man, and it spread quickly and far wide. And uh, so he really has become something very special here in the Detroit area. And uh, so we've been working with his cause. Of course, he died in 1957. And Yeah, can you tell us a little bit about the process of uh, where you are and with the cause, and uh, what's the status? Okay. Well, right now he is referred to as uh, Venerable Solanus Casey, and he received that title back in 1996. He was proven to have lived a virtuous life to a heroic degree, and uh, with that then uh, we began to look at cases that were being reported to us about healings. And um, so we're looking at this point for a healing that could be considered miraculous and through the intercession of Father Solanus. It's not easy. It's, it's a difficult uh, process, but um, we are sure that somewhere along the line that, that we will be finding something that will be definitely a very uh, pointed to him as the healing has come through his intercession of prayer. Can you, can you talk a little bit about that? I know that's tricky because as Catholics, we always call on our full set of favorite saints when we're in trouble. Yet, mm-hmm. Similar to when we're, mo- we're moving from house to house, we call on our strongest friends to lift a few boxes. When we're right. uh, in times of trouble, we call on all our favorite saints. Can you talk a little bit about that, how you determine that a person is praying to exactly Father Solanus and not another saint? Yes. Well, you know, in general, yes, many of the people who have come to know of Father Solanus pick up on him as being a very dear friend. And um, so they do pray to him and uh, ask for many favors to take place in their lives, and uh, things happen. Um, one of the things, though, that, that we really need to look for in something of a healing that the Church will be looking for is actually a healing to prove his holiness, and that it is uh, only through his intercession and something that has happened rather uh, quickly, dramatically. And um, so it's really, there's a, a lot of investigation that has to go into causes. We have had thousands of reports given to us. In fact, we have eight file cabinets that are just filled. Wow reports that uh, they feel that Father Solanus has interceded for them in some way or another. But when it comes to a type of healing that is needed for uh, the canonization, it's a very in-depth study, and uh, it has to show that uh, there's been no other means or intercession in any way other than through Father Solanus. And, so, and in a case of a medical miracle, which is the predominant type of miracle that's used in a canonization cause, if there's been medical treatment uh, on the on the patient, does that rule out a miraculous intervention or not necessarily? Well, it does rule out at least for canonization process. It does. Um, we're looking for something that's rather dramatic of, um, uh, say, I was to break my leg uh, today and go to the hospital and I say, well, I'll have to set it tomorrow. Yeah. Um, 
And in the meantime, I might be praying to Father Solanus. Perhaps I might even have one of his relic badges or something and put it on my leg. And the next morning when I go in for surgery, they said, well, there's nothing wrong with this leg. Yeah. You know, and so it has to be something of that uh, dramatic and very sudden. Um, and a lot of times... And it has to be, like you said, lasting, correct? Whatever the healing, lasting. it can't yeah. just be a temporary fix. It must go on for years and years and consider it a lasting healing, correct? Yeah, right. That is definite. And uh, and it was much like when he was alive. There were a lot of times when he would uh, uh, even say to people, he said, well, why don't you try Dr. So-and-so? He'll have the answer for you. Hmm. Or, um, you know, have someone take care of you for this or that, you know? He knew that, you know, and in a way they were miracles insofar as people were inspired to do the right thing. Sure. And uh, I, I don't, I don't, know for sure of this, but I feel like I've heard so many stories of Father Solanus. If, in fact, there was a story of a miracle while he was alive, does that count as, a, as towards the sainthood cause, or does it need to be uh, after he has died and he's with God? Yes, that's correct. They have to be, a miracle has to take place after the death of Father Solanus. It's giving indication that he is in heaven, that he is with God. And so... Uh, those are the only types of healing. And uh, like you said, you know, you'd probably have heard of uh, things that have happened during his lifetime, in which we do. We have, again, just, you know, uh, several, uh, in fact, I think it's 16 books or so of favors received that uh, Father Solanus kept track of, and because he did that under the um, direction of the superiors. The superiors said, you know, we hear a lot of these things happen. Would you keep track of this? Sure, sure. Oh, it's good they were written down. And of all those cabinets and, and all those books, uh, can you share with us uh, just one story, one of your favorite stories, even though it may not count towards canonization as it needs to be investigated thoroughly, can you, can you share with us a story or two that, that uh, you find amazing about uh, Father Flonis? Yes. Um, there was a story of uh, probably about 12, 11, 12, at least 12 years ago, that there was a young family that came in, and they had twin girls, and they were three months of age. And um, the one child had um, um, uh, an ailment of um, being paralyzed and wasn't able to walk or had very little movement in its body at all. And um, so uh, they had heard about Father Solanus, and so they came in and they asked to lay her, the little girl, on the tomb of Father Solanus. And so we did. And um, we said some prayers with her, and all of a sudden she began to move her arms and her legs. Mm. And I was present for it, but I was not aware of the severity of what the problem was. Uh. Of course, the parents picked up on that, and they were just totally amazed. And so they thanked for thanked us for the prayers and so forth, and they went on home, and then they called their nurse in and called their doctor and everything else just to say, you know, this is what has happened. Well, there were some other problems in along the way that we weren't able to use that particular case for um, uh, a miracle. But um, the child is fine today. Uh, what now probably, well, it has to be at least 12 years of age. And a little girl, and uh, she runs around and talks and everything else. You know, it was like there was nothing wrong with her. That's an amazing story. Um, yeah. Now, how? And I'm sure there are, are many, many more stories like that one. How now? How can somebody find out more information on Father Solanus? Any of these miracle stories, or to financially support the cause, or to submit a story of a favor or miracle of their own uh, that they've obtained through Father Solanus? Yes. Well, uh, the Father Solanus Guild would be the folks to contact. The Guild has been the group of people from early on, from 1960, who formed a community of uh, faithful people around Father Solanus who have been working towards his cause for canonization. And so the Father Solanus Guild has been set up to both receive... uh, uh, favors that have been uh, reported, as well as to be um, an instrument or a group of people to pray for other people in their need 
in asking Salamis' intercession. And do you have a website or a phone number that you would recommend that people call? Uh, well, yes, we do have the, the uh, phone number of uh, 313-579-2100, extension 161. And then we also have um, uh, a website, which would be under uh, uh, Father Solanus Guild. And, um, let's see, it's uh, Solanus Guild. Dot org, and uh, people can contact us through that as well. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Uh, yeah. We really appreciate you coming on the show, and uh, we, we look forward to hearing more uh, from Father Solanus in the future. Yes, okay. Well, thank you for allowing us to be here with you today. Thank you so much. Thank you. And that was Brother, Brother Richard Merling, uh, the co-vice postulator of the cause and director of the Father Solanus Casey Guild. And again, to find out more information about the Guild and Father Solanus Casey, please visit solanuscasey.org. This is Michael O'Neill, and you are listening to the Miracle Hunter Radio Show. And for more information on the program or on my research on miracles, please visit MiracleHunter.com. Now, another candidate for the next American saint is someone I have a great interest in. Not only did she make the very difficult journey of converting from Mormonism, which is especially difficult for Mormon women due to some of the restrictions of that faith, but she's also a mystic who received visions of the Blessed Virgin Mary. Now, if she were canonized, she would join the ranks of other great saints who are also visionaries, such as St. Juan Diego, St. Catherine Labore, St. Bernadette of Lourdes, and St. Margaret Mary Alacoque. For a complete list of these saints who are also visionaries, you can check out the list on MiracleHunter.com. Um, now, Cora Evans had her first mystical experience in Apparition of the Blessed Mother at the age of three, and it's also the lead story in her autobiography in her mystical life, Captain of the Ship. And we'd like to welcome today to the show, Michael McDevitt. Well, hello, Michael. Thank you for joining me today. It's good to hear your voice. Well, thank you. I appreciate to be uh, being on your show. And um, so Cora Evans is somebody that people aren't necessarily familiar with, of course, we all get excited about potential American saints, and uh, and she's in a special class of her own as being not only a visionary, but uh, a laywoman who's uh, potentially up for canonization. What can you tell us a little bit about her story? Well, Cora Evans' story is, is truly remarkable. Uh, she was uh, born in 1904, and she was raised in a Mormon family uh, in 1924, uh, she went through the wedding ceremony in the Mormon temple in Salt Lake City. And it was that experience that uh, had her come out of the, the marriage ceremony rejecting Mormonism. She, At that point, she just simply could not believe that there was a God above the God of Abraham or that there were men who became gods. Uh, the whole concept just you know, just was not right for her. And so at that point, she, you know, she said that when she left the the ceremony, she felt like she did not have a religion, but she had a husband. Um, and that really, I think, began about a 10-year search where she investigated some different religions, uh, but the one religion she was not going to uh, look into was the Catholic faith because of what she had been told about what Catholics believe. So that kind of built up to um, uh, her conversion story, which in itself is rather remarkable. Uh, she was home in bed. They lived in Ogden, excuse me, Ogden, Utah, and she was too sick to get out of bed, and her husband and two children were not home, and the radio was on the other side of the room, and she said if if she wasn't so sick, she would have gotten up and changed the station because it went from being uh, the sound of music 
to uh, Monsignor Dwayne Hunt coming on the radio. The, at the time, uh, a Monsignor in the Diocese of Salt Lake City. He would later become the Catholic Bishop of the Diocese of Salt Lake City. Um, and he, in the radio program, started talking about what Catholics believe, what Catholics believe about the Blessed Mother, what some of the theology of the Church was. And when Cora heard this, it was unlike anything she had ever heard of before, and she decided at that moment that the next thing that she would do when she was well enough would be to go and visit a Catholic church, uh, which she did, which was St. Joseph's Church in, in Ogden, Utah. So that's uh, that's kind of a preliminary uh, background of uh, of her early life uh, as a Mormon and that leading leading up to her her conversion. Right. Now, I, I have a, a great interest in Marian apparitions, as you know, as do many of our listeners. Can you tell us a little bit about the visions experienced by Cora? Now, I know uh, they started when she was very young, and they continued on a little bit. Can you talk a little bit about, about that and, and how they played a role in her life? Well, uh, the earliest uh, experience that she had uh, was when she was quite young, like uh, about three years old, but she didn't understand it. Um, later, uh, after this conversion, uh, for example, in 1938, uh, she had a profound vision uh, where uh, she was, uh, her husband even thought she had passed away. She was in a, in a deep state of ecstasy, and our Lord gave her the, uh, the choice of continuing on and, and uh, you know, being dedicated the rest of her life uh, uh, you know, to his calling, and that's what she chose. And that that really began a period, um, uh, really, for the rest of her life, where many, many times she would be called into that form of prayer called ecstasy, which is not uh, it's not something you or I could, uh, you know, aspire to. It's a pure gift from God. You mentioned a few saints... Um, uh, before we started this uh, conversation, uh, St. Margaret Mary, for example, was the one that uh, we feel closest to because, uh, like Cora, she received uh, messages from our Lord, and, um, you know, that that was really what led us to the devotion of the Sacred Heart. Um, and our connection there, uh, you know, seeing Cora with all these ecstasies, uh, is that Father Frank Parrish, who was Cora's uh, spiritual guide, spiritual director, uh, is renowned in his own way for a miracle with the uh, relic of Claude Colombier, who was Margaret Mary's uh, spiritual director. Father, Father Frank blessed a terminally ill person with that relic, and that was a miracle cure that moved Claude Colombier from Blessed Claude to um, being canonized as saint. So we kind of have our roots in Scripture, but also when mystically we like to reflect on the story of uh, Margaret Mary as well. So Cora had um, numerous, numerous uh, uh, ecstasy experiences. She was considered a hidden mystic. Uh, the Cardinal in Los Angeles and the Jesuits did not want... Um, a big um, hoopla all around this person who was a mystic. So she was really uh, considered a hidden mystic, and her calling by our Lord was to write. And the, what she was to write about and communicate about was the mystical humanity of Christ. And yeah, Can you tell us a little bit more? I, I see that term on your website, and I've read a little bit about it. What can you tell the listeners? What is the mystical humanity of Christ? The mystical humanity of Christ is the divine indwelling. It's that interior indwelling of um, Christ within us. And when we talk about the mystical humanity of Christ, it's Eucharistic spirituality. It's, it's living with a heightened awareness of the presence of Christ in our life. So the, the idea, like St. Paul writes about, is uh, or St. Teresa, for example, that Christ has no other hands but ours and no other voice but ours. It's like we invite Jesus every day to dwell within us and then take him with us wherever we go. 
that's what the mystical humanity of Christ is about. It's it's allowing Christ to uh, relive his humanity through us each and every day with everybody that we encounter. So that's kind of the, the heart of what that means. And now that that seems to be uh, a concept supported by the writings of, of earlier saints, as you mentioned. What, what was the Catholic Church's reaction to uh, the writings of Korah and uh, some of some of these, the theology of the mystical humanity of Christ. Obviously, in cases like uh, St. Faustina, you have uh, the Divine Mercy devotion that rose around it, but uh, uh, St. Faustina was suppressed for many years by the Church until a full understanding of what uh, she was proposing uh, came out. What, what has been the Church's position towards the mystical humanity of Christ and the writings of Korah Evans? Well, well there's two... Um, uh two approaches to answering that. One is, um, uh, in 1992, when Father Frank Parrish asked me to be the custodian for Cora's writings and to uh, further what I could about uh, her mission, uh, we started doing retreats. And we've done about 100 retreats at parishes uh, throughout northern and southern California, Utah, uh, Connecticut, uh, and Hawaii, and, you know, different areas. Um, and talked to uh, and, you know, presented the, the whole idea of the mystical humanity of Christ to my archbishop at the time, Archbishop George Niederauer. Uh, he granted the uh, imprimatur to the prayer card for the intercession of Cora Evans, which also includes that explanation that I just gave about the mystical humanity of Christ. So the reception to the... Um, uh, the idea of the mystical humanity of Christ has been very positive, uh, received by many bishops, uh, Bishop John Wester in Salt Lake City, for example, and, and many others. And um, uh, so I think the because it's rooted in Scripture, it's not some something that just one person came up with, it really supports uh, what the Church is talking about. And uh, Cardinal Levada even referred to it as Eucharistic spirituality. So uh, the, the whole idea, I think, is very, very positively uh, accepted. Um, when we were in Rome, uh, and now it's about two years ago, the feedback that we got was that this would sounds like something that would be so positive for the Church in the United States. And so um, I think we're on very solid ground uh, with the mystical humanity of Christ. And as far as Cora's writings are concerned, uh, uh, two years ago, um, Bishop Richard Garcia in the Diocese of Monterey, California, uh, opened up the cause for Cora Evans. Uh, he wrote a letter to the Vatican about this cause being opened, and the, Vatic the letter came back from the Vatican, granting the Nihil Obstate, or the permission to proceed, and declaring her a servant of God. So now we're uh, in the process where theologians are formally uh, looking at her writings. Uh, you mentioned the captain of the ship, uh, which is the autobiography of her mystical life. Uh, that was read by one uh, rather uh, renowned theologian uh, who gave a very positive um, you know, opinion on that. But now the process... Um, is much more formalized. Uh, there'll be two theologians. Uh, they won't actually. They will not know who the other one is that's doing it. It's all done under the bishop and the bishop's delegate. Uh, so that review is very formal and is going on right now. Um, and there, you know, there are other aspects of of the cause that are underway, which have to do with gathering testimonies and having a historian gather all the materials. So forth. So we're kind of in that stage of the process of okay. having everything reviewed. And you may you may have answered that with your previous response, uh, but your role is the custodian for the writings of Cora Evans and the petitioner for the cause. Can you can you tell the listeners a little bit about first of all how you got involved, and secondly, what are what are the roles of the petitioner of the cause as opposed to uh, other other people who may be um, um, involved in a canonization cause? Sure. Well, how I got involved is uh, Father Frank Parrish, uh, he, he's deceased now, and he was my mother's brother. So 
also uh, awareness in our family of his role with Cora Evans, you know, was part of um, what I experienced uh, growing up. And so uh, I was able to read some of her writings, and I would discuss them with Father Frank. So he asked me in 1992, he took me aside, and he said he had been praying about this and thinking about it, and would I be willing to be the custodian? And then right away I said yes, and then after a pause I said, what's a custodian? <laughs> you know, what does this mean? And, and so uh, it, it really initially... Uh, because Cora, none of her, you know, no petition had been written and it hadn't been formally brought up to the bishop yet, uh, we simply started doing retreats. And at retreats, I wouldn't talk about Cora, other than to, to say that this next reflection was written by Cora. Most of the reflections um, were uh, from Scripture, from St. Paul, that uh, enabled us to talk about the mystical humanity of Christ and and you know, the popular uh, piety kept growing and growing uh, with many, many people using that as a form of daily prayer, you know, asking people, asking Christ to dwell within them. Um, so uh, about five years ago, I felt like, okay, what we need to do is uh, formally submit this to the Church. So uh, I was the key author of the petition and with others helping and we took the petition to uh, Bishop Garcia. Bishop Garcia then uh, uh, met with uh, uh, Father Joseph Grimaldi, who was in his diocese at the time. Uh, Father Joe uh, was the postulator for the cause of St. Damien and served as the promoter of justice for the cause of uh, St. Mariana Cope, who mm-hmm. was his, you know, and Damien's uh, supporter, helper there. And uh, so Father Joe read our petition and uh, told, you know, recommended that the bishop go forward with it, and then the bishop asked him if he would be willing to be the postulator for this cause. So Father Joe is our postulator. So in terms of roles and responsibility, uh, as the petitioner... Um, we have a nonprofit organization that was founded by Father Parrish um, for putting on retreats and doing this work. And as the petitioner, by canon law, we are financially and morally responsible uh, for the cause. In terms of responsibility, the bishop uh, is the one who is in charge of invest- this whole investigation. So we're doing everything we can to support the bishop, uh, to help with gathering information, uh, publishing writings, um, you know, uh, any travel or any of those kind of expenses that are involved with the theological review and all that, and putting everything together. That's We're in the background as uh, the ones who help uh, make that happen and help as a catalyst and financial backers for it. But ultimately, what happens, and we think we're probably maybe 18 months to two years away from this, what happens is that uh, the bishop will then turn uh, a new updated petition, if you will, over to the Vatican. And if the Vatican accepts that, then uh, the whole cause moves from Monterey to the Vatican. That's kind of where we are right now in, in the process. Great. No, that's a great update. I think uh, listeners are happy to hear of the progress, and it's very fascinating for somebody who's not involved in a canonization cause to sort of hear uh, the behind-the-scenes of how it all works. So that's that's very interesting for me. Um, well, it's, it's been it's been exciting, and, and it's been a challenge because it's not like there's a lot of people around, at least that I know, that you know I can go. No, how do you do this? What do you do here? <laughs> so right, right. So I. I've reviewed the canon law many times and had uh, great discussions with Father Joe and, and others uh, that, uh, that uh, you just kind of dive in. And uh, so much has happened that uh, there's just no question. If our Lord wants Cora Evans to become a saint, she'll become a saint. You know, we're right. just doing our part, and uh, doors keep flying open and things keep moving forward. So, 
we'll see what yeah, that I think I think you've done a great job of piquing people's interest about uh, Cora Evans, so hopefully people can pray for that cause. Uh, how can they find out more information about Cora Evans, or if they have a miracle that's attributed to her intercession, how, how can they get in touch? Well, uh, one thing, you know, we've had uh, requests from people literally all around the world, and I think it's 35 different states and 12 foreign countries, uh, and we put together something that is excerpts of her writings uh, called the Selected Writings of Cora Evans. And we send that out to people, and there's a little donation envelope enclosed, so they don't have to send us any money. All we need is, from them is uh, a mailing address. So if somebody's interested in that, they can send me an email at mysticalhumanity at AOL.com. So that's the easiest way for people to get samples of her writings and more information about her life. And if people are interested in the parish retreats that you offer, how can people find out about that? We have a website that is titled parishretreat.org. And if you go to that website, uh, uh, everything that uh, somebody would be want to know about a parish retreat or talks, we, we do quite a few um, uh, talks or they're just uh, like a one-hour talk, uh, you know, that kind of thing, too. So, But if you go to parishretreat.org, there's also a lot of information about Cora Evans on that site. Great. Well, thanks so much, uh, Michael, for joining us today. Uh, this has been uh, Michael McDevitt, uh, the custodian of the writings of Cora Evans and the petitioner for the cause of Cora Evans and executive director of the Mystical Humanity of Christ. For more information on Cora Evans or Parish Retreats, please visit parishretreat.org. Thanks so much for joining us, Michael. Well, God bless you. Thank you very much. And this has been Michael O'Neill. You are listening to the radio show of Miracle Hunter. Uh, For more information on this program or research on my miracles, please visit miraclehunter.com. And that's all the time we have for today. Uh, I'd like to thank our guests for joining us on the show. Uh, Next week should be an interesting one as well. Uh, We'll be discussing the famous miracle story of the conversion of Alphonse Radisbonne. We'll be talking about the wonders of the miraculous medal. On February 7th and 8th, I'll be giving three talks at a retreat run by our Sorrowful Mothers Ministries in Vandalia, Illinois. That's in southern Illinois, not too far from St. Louis. For more information on attending this retreat, please visit... OSMMM.org. That's OSMM.org or MiracleHunter.com. And be sure to visit our website as your resource for miracles and to keep up to date with how Our Lady is honored around the world at 365dayswithmary.com. Thanks for joining me today on Miracle Hunter, where it doesn't matter if you're a believer or a skeptic, skeptic, but it's always worth the hunt. Thanks. Have a good day. You're tuned to Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. The program you just heard was a rebroadcast of Miracle Hunter with Michael O'Neill.